This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking with Jonathan Bailey, author, photographer, and conservationist. Jonathan has a new book out entitled, When I Was Red Clay. We start with Jonathan explaining the title of his new book. So I'm a big fan of pocketed meanings uh, in that I want people 20, 30 years down the line to pick up my work and find something in it they didn't realize before. So that's true for the cover. It's true for the title. It's true for a lot of the essays in there too. So the title has multiple meanings, the most direct of which is reflective of an essay that talks about color and the associations I have with certain colors within the faith, within the natural world as well. So the emphasis to red clay is not just an emphasis of where I came from, uh, being you know a very badlands rich area, uh, but also a reflection of that reconciliation between the, the associations I had with the color red. So the colors of the desert, you did talk about a few of them, the turquoise and uh, the yellows and things like that. Can you, can you go into more of the colors? Sure. I mean, going back to red specifically, it's a, a color that, for whatever reason, um, I had a really hard time with as a kid, part of that being like sensory related. And so I would specifically like turn dolls away because they, their cheeks were really red or, <laughs> um, you know, hide objects that were given to me that were red because I just really hated the color. But it also took on a lot of meaning as it was my father's favorite color. You know, that balance between him being a more faithful, devout Mormon and already disliking the color and that association there. But then, as the book says, most of my loves are also red, ironically, in that it's red rock and it's red pigment. And so, like, the dealing with color is also a metaphor in many ways for reconciling the relationship of myself and with my former faith and with my father and, you know, the relationships uh, throughout my life. I know you mentioned yellow used to be your favorite in the, in the desert. Why is that? I think for me, yellow has just, it's been the color I always see the most in, in, the most in the smallest quantities, <laughs> if that makes yeah. any sense. It, it's a seasonal color. You know, it's uh, something that in the mountains above where I grew up, which is Farron, come spring, you would see these blankets of yellow that are precious but abundant. And I mentioned very early in the book, uh, desert trumpets, which are one of my favorite plants. And they have these very delicate little yellow flowers, which is why I chose it as my favorite color growing up. Nice. And of course, the one of one of my favorites, which has lots of meaning is the turquoise. Yeah, turquoise is obvious. The more obvious explanations is that it's um, turquoise itself, the, the mineral. But also, I mean, this is more recent even, but I've been walking these ancient trails down here that were very widely used to transport marine shells and pigments and and things like that. And interestingly, some of those shells that pass through here have been found all the way up 
in my hometown of Farron. That's, you know, distance of seven to 800 miles that they've traveled over a thousand years ago. While walking these trails, I see these fragments of blue pigment occasionally. And and it's just such a, it, it encapsulates my associations with the color that it's, you know, the color of water and they're traveling between literally the ocean to the middle of Utah. And they're doing this, you know, 1200 years ago or more. I, I was taken a bit by your story about uh, what it meant to feel so close to a creature when your story about a dragonfly, when mm-hmm. humanity felt so distant. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I think that we have this idea that nature inherently hates us. And I think that there's... A, it's almost a self-justification of that in that we hate ourselves and then we expect animals to do so. But what I've found is often animals are incredibly caring. And, you know, growing up, I would often leave to the cemetery, which is the nearest safe space in many ways. And that it's, you know, super dark and secluded. And there's a lot of trees, a lot of big pine trees. And there were two owls that live there that were a mating pair that would do the you know the mating ritual of where they're calling back and forth and I visit them all the time and the other thing about my hometown is there are a lot of dogs that aren't very well taken care of so I very frequently would be attacked by dogs bitten you know that sort of thing if I was just out and about and what I found really interesting is occasionally when I was sitting in that cemetery, the owls would go out of their way to come to me and make a fuss if there was a dog acting aggressively that was entering the cemetery and and make sure I got out of there. Hmm. Uh, So for me, I've had many of these instances where animals don't dislike us. And in fact, they care about us, it seems in many cases. And I've had many instances where they, I've been warned, they're just affectionate, or a lot of times I just see them respond to what I'm providing to them. So if I'm acting anxious, they act anxious in return. If I'm acting receptive to them, they're receptive to me. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. In the story of the dragonfly, the wounded dragonfly, mm-hmm. why did you want to write about that? So dragonflies have always had kind of an interesting meaning among my family. For whatever reason, my family always promised to be reincarnated as dragonflies. So when I was really little, there would always be this like same dragonfly that would appear the same time every year. We didn't even live that very very close to a water source. And it would just like, you know, land near me, land on me. (laughs) And so it it took on kind of an interesting meaning in that there was already this buildup of symbolism, but then no matter where I go, there's just damselflies everywhere. And I'm not a person that thinks there's any like hidden arrangement <laughs> behind that or anything. It's just uh, an interesting thing that they keep appearing to me because people are buying me things and not knowing, not knowing anything about this. And they always have damselflies on it. I move into any space and there are damselflies everywhere or uh, damselflies and dragonflies, I should say. 
it's been weird, <laughs> but, but it's also meaningful to me. And, and as I mentioned in there, um, Ari Barillo, who you've also interviewed, we had this conversation and he had a very similar thing with him and he has a, a dragonfly tattoo on his arm. So it was another funny correlation. So you feel the feeling close to creatures or the uh, natural, let's just say animals and feeling so distant from humanity. In what way are you, do you feel distance from, from humanity? The context, I guess, is that I grew up obviously gay and was in a Mormon community that overwhelmingly is not accepting of that. So for me, I was drawn toward animals in that it was a space where I didn't have to justify who I was. Particularly, I found myself really connecting with the like urban wild in some ways because I saw coyotes and owls and a lot of these species that have so much negative connotation with, you know, you know, the tricksters or, you know, foreboding of evil <laughs> or whatever. And I saw a lot of myself in that because, you know, I was here in this community and I am here and I was there because, you know, I was being pushed out of my community, just like they've, you know, this is their, this is where the owls and coyotes belong, but they're being forced to the outskirts. And because they're in the outskirts, they have to justify their existence. They have to, you know, they have to act in ways that make other people suspicious of them and, and give them the opportunity to basically say whatever they want about the coyotes and the owls, if that makes any sense. So for me, going to the wild or, or needing the wild is just about also needing myself. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, your mentioning of anachronistic plants. Mm -hmm. And namely, you were talking about uh, coyote gourd in the Sonoran Desert. So can you explain what anachronistic plants are and a little bit about the coyote gourd? Yeah, so the coyote gourd is a plant that occurs from southern Utah all the way through Sonora. Basically, it's an, a plant that adapted to animals that no longer exist. So we're thinking of like mammoths or extinct versions of javelina. We have javelina here now, but those are a different species that came from the south. But there are a number of plants that evolved to things like mammoths and whatnot. But because their you know, main means of propagation have gone extinct, they use other means of propagation, which are ecologically expensive, such as just water dispersal or rodents taking their seeds into their dens or whatever. But it leaves these kind of open-ended relationships in a, in a way, in that these plants only exist because of these animals that no longer exist. Um, and we have a lot of examples that are in our fridges uh, such as avocados, which evolved to large extinct mammals, but exist primarily now because of humans and because we eat avocados. When, when you were a young a, a boy, you were caught in a canyon rockfall. 
Yeah. And that obviously is a life changing experience. Have you ever been afraid to, to go back into the canyons? No, actually. It happened when I, I would think I was 18. I may have been 17. But the cliff collapsed. I heard my hiking. I was hiking with my father at the time. I heard him shouting. <laughs> and I looked up and I just saw this like collapsing towards me. And then it hit me and I was tumbling. At one point, I felt a part of like a giant section of rock skim over my hair <laughs> as I was rolling with it. <laughs> then I landed. I thought I was okay. And then I stood up and it just felt weird. And I looked down at my shorts and there was just like so much blood. <laughs> and so I, I pulled back the shorts and there was just no skin under there. It was just all exposed muscle. And so, you know, I had to be rescued. Basically, as soon as I was capable, I was dragging myself back out there on crutches. I never really had any psychological effects from it. I think in some ways, shock kind of removed a lot of uh, fear, I would say. It wasn't, I, I was never fearful during it. Wow. With Utah, and what happened with me is you have such rapid fluctuations of temperature. So I was going out in the snow, and I thought that it would retain, it would remain being snow. But as you know, it very frequently just melts um, midwinter or, mm. or whatever. And so that, you know, sticky, wet moisture that has come from melting snow just rapidly destabilized the cliff above me. Yeah, back to your work with, you know, all the conservation. We talked earlier a year or so ago about your work with photographing rock art for conservation, things like that. And one thing you mentioned in the book is your work with Mustn't Touch It Badlands, which is kind of sent between the San Rafael Swell and the northern part of uh, Capitol Reef, if I'm correct. Right. BLM was considering leasing that area for oil and gas exploration. And you did some work and pleaded with them not to do that. I wonder if you go into that just a little bit. Yeah, so we... We being primarily me and Diane Orr of the Utah Rock Art Research Association have worked on that central area of Utah for probably the last 10 years. It's uh, over this period of time, there have been something like 500,000 acres that have been proposed for oil and gas. And we've so far successfully deferred all of those leases. It's an incredible area and, and very diverse in the ways that it evolves as you move through it. You have the Muslim Touch at Badlands at the lowest point uh, elevation-wise that are really sandy and otherworldly in a lot of ways with a lot of endemic plants that have adapted to this very sandy environment. So you have Asclepius ruthiae, which is a, a milkweed that is just like a mat with these purple star-like flowers. You also have really unusual mat plants uh, called Colorado fever few that attach themselves to the cliffs, usually the top parts of cliffs. <laughs> and these are really high wind areas, but they stay at the surface of the ground where there's, you know, effectively no wind. And you have 
an endemic species of cactus with these white flowers. But then you start going northward and you have rich archaeology. You have immense amounts of dinosaur bones and tracks and other things. And you also have other rare plants such as Farron's milk vetch. But it's an incredible area. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book and with a lot of the work I do is just to emphasize, you know, how valuable these places are and how valuable these resources are. Because as many people have described in other media and on this, on your podcast, it is so hard to protect something if people don't care about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's part of the effort with, with this book and with others. I'm guessing there's not a lot of roads out there at this point. Not a whole lot. You had to backpack into the whole area. So yeah, I mean, even adding, I think we talked about this actually before, but eating, even the addition of, of a single road, you get exponential number of people then because where there's a road, people will go. And right. so yeah, in a roadless area, it's, it's a huge deal to, to preserve that from you know no matter what it's for but anytime a road's added you have that that risk right so you, you just mentioned uh several uh, there were other areas what other areas um you said you, you were uh, working to waylay oil and gas at, um work besides the must and touch it so the must and touch it badlands or the southwest corner you have the mullen reef stretching from there to the north, Emory Carbon border kind of area. You have the Price River area, uh, which is incredibly remote. There's not even trails down in there um, for like 30 miles or something. And then to the far south, west of Green River, you have the whole of the Satterfeld Desert, which at its uh, southern point, you have Canyonlands, the, the Horseshoe Canyon segment of Canyonlands. Uh, so those would be the kind of, we're, we're looking at the ring around the Sanderfell Swell, which was protected under the Dingle Act, but the outer ring, which ironically in some ways, ecologically, I would say, is more important than the swell itself, huh. has no protection right now in any capacity. Yeah. I appreciate that you you write and you go to nature for basically solace from uh, the, the human world and also love that you use your writing for good for trying to protect places that are sacred so really appreciate that and Thank you. yeah so when i was red clay comes out september 20th 20th excellent i'm sure back of beyond we'll have it right here in moab and yeah i really look forward to seeing it Jonathan, I appreciate you coming and talking to us again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support 
makes it possible.